go to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Hey, Pastor Brother Tyler already preached this. I know. That is not lost on me. I listened to it and now I got to clean it up. Kids. Mercy. My wife's going, what? No, he preached the last part of the chapter. I'm going to preach the first part of the chapter. And um, while you're turning there, let me uh, encourage you to pray uh, for some folks. I would appreciate uh, you praying for my wife, uh, Katie. She's got an appointment on Friday uh, with the ear, nose, and throat uh, doctor in Wichita. And Lord willing, uh, we're going to get some answers to her dizziness and, and disorientation and, and all of that. Um, what caused her to faint when we were in San Francisco a month or so ago. Um, so pray for that if you would. And also pray for Joy Elmore. I don't know how many of you are aware that uh, Brother Monty took her to Oklahoma City. Uh, she was just not doing well at all. Um, her spleen was very, very much enlarged. And uh, they've been pumping her full of uh, prednisone. And uh, the swelling is coming down. And uh, she's pretty much disoriented right now herself and um, kind of loopy. And so um, they're still awaiting. They've been waiting two days for the uh, blood test results. And they keep telling them we're going to have them the next day. Um, they still don't have them uh, as of now. And so remember to pray uh, for joy. If you would please, it uh, seems to be a fairly uh, really serious matter for her, and, and uh, so remember her uh, in prayer. And then also Gwen uh, Dunham fell this week and uh, broke her ankle. Uh, they had to uh, fix it up with 11 screws um, in her ankle, and she also tweaked her knee in the same fall, and they're not quite sure how they're going to approach that yet. Um, she may have torn some things in there as well, and uh, so they're going to deal with the ankle and then deal with the knee. Uh, so pray for her, and then continue to pray for Miss Karen. As, as was said, she's home now, or at least she's with uh, Sheila uh, Limbacher now and, and uh, staying there. Appreciate all of the ladies that had a hand in caring for Karen almost, almost 60 days in the hospital, and all of those that stayed with her and sat with her and uh, those that went to see her, thank you uh, for being a blessing uh, to Miss Karen. And then um, please pray for Donna Sill and uh, Al as well. Donna's mother passed away this week, and they'll be laying her to rest tomorrow in Ottawa. So uh, be much in prayer for them as well. How many of you have heard the term or you've heard the phrase margin of error? How many of you heard that? Margin of, of error is an amount, usually a, a very small amount, that is allowed in uh, or for, for uh, situations where maybe there's been a, a slight miscalculation or a change of circumstances. For example, uh, during the um, elections, uh, you hear it often. They'll give the, the poll results, and then they'll say that those numbers are within the margin of error, give or take 
uh, a number to plus two or plus one or whatever. When I, I, I am not a cook uh, at all. I cook toast and um, I cook oatmeal. And uh, my oatmeal recipe is pretty simple. Uh, two cups of water to one cup of oatmeal. Now, if I don't get that just right, there is some margin for error there. If I don't get it just right, it's, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's really not that big a deal. So there is some margin there for error. My wife makes a to-die-for chocolate cake. You that have had her chocolate cake know, mercy, it is good chocolate cake. And... Um, see Lorraine back there for some some reason Lorraine ends up usually get I get like one piece and how she ends up with the rest of it I have no idea but it's not right probably because I don't need it my wife says you can have one piece and then I'm going to get rid of it but she has made that over and over and over and over again and it has never ever not one time been a bad cake it has always been a good cake now I don't know exactly we're trying to she's trying to remember yesterday how many cups of how many cups of sugar did you say one cup of sugar she puts in there now if she if if she puts a little more than that or a little less than that there's some margin for error there um, it's not going to be that big a deal it'll still taste fine uh, because it doesn't have to be like spot on, it doesn't have to be just perfect. So there are some areas in our lives where uh, good enough and close enough are acceptable. Chocolate cake, oatmeal, um, things of that, uh, uh, elections, close enough, good enough, that's fine. But at the same time, there are some areas when neither of those are acceptable. For example, when you go to the dentist, you don't want him to get close to the right tooth. You want him to pull the precise tooth that needs to be pulled, yes or no? Absolutely, close enough in hand grenades works. Close enough in dentistry doesn't work. We have to be right on. No margin for error. Get the right tooth. What about your surgeon? How many would you say, eh, close enough? <laughs> no. <laughs> if that dude's going to cut on me, I want to make sure he's cutting in exactly the right place. Don't, don't be fudging up or down, left or right. Make sure that you cut precisely where you're supposed to cut. Now, if there's anything that must be spot on and does not allow for even the slightest, I mean even the slightest, there's more room for a surgeon not cutting precisely than there is for error when it comes to the gospel. There's no room for error. We can't be, well, close enough, or that's good enough. No, it has to be perfect. 
The gospel must be spot on. Because when we deal with the gospel, we're dealing with eternity. We're dealing with the difference, literally, between heaven and hell. And if the doctrine of the gospel is not spot on, it's going to create some eternal issues. So we've got to get the gospel right because eternity hangs in the balance. Now, as we approach this 15th chapter of Acts, Paul and Barnabas had just finished their first missionary journey. They had returned to their sending church, which was the the church of Antioch, and they went back there to give a report of everything that God had done along the way. Look at the end of chapter 14 and verse 27. And when they were come, that's Paul and Silas, when they were come to the church, they gathered the church together, They rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Now, if you don't understand this tonight, you and I, we're Gentiles. We're non-Jews. So we're Gentile people. And it was on this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas that God swung the door of the gospel wide open, inviting all of the Gentiles in to the truth of the gospel. That was one of the most exciting things that God had done on this whole journey. And he had done some wonderful things. They had, he had uh, raised up a couple of men who were, had been lame on their feet uh, for all of their, their life. And they were made to walk. And, and there were a number of other wonderful things that God did in the midst of the people and by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. But the, but the greatest thing of all was when he opened the door to the Gentiles. And most people were pretty excited about that. They were pretty positive about that. But not all were. Look at the first verse of chapter 15. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. How many think this is an issue? Huh? These men came and said, hey, 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 wait a minute. If you don't, if you don't get circumcised, as is the manner of the Jews then I'm sorry, but you can't go to heaven. It doesn't matter what else you've done. It doesn't matter anything what what Jesus has done. If you don't get circumcised, then you can't get to heaven. These men were perverting the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And this was an issue, as we'll see. So here's the first thought tonight. We must defend salvation by grace this is exactly what paul and barnabas did look at the first part of verse 2 when therefore paul and barnabas had no small dissension and disputation 
with them. Preacher, what does that mean? It means that this was an all-out, in-your-face, I'm not budging one inch on this kind of argument. This was not a, hey, let's sit down and, and let's discuss this. No, 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 no. Paul and Barnabas went there to set them straight, and they were going to stand their ground on the doctrine of salvation by grace and grace alone. And there was no small dissension. There was no small uh, disputation. There was no small discussion. Make no mistake about it. This was an all-out defense of the doctrine of salvation by grace. So church, let's be clear about something tonight. It's right to fight when you fight for right. Ah, but we're Christians. Yeah, but this book needs to be defended from time to time. And sometimes that means that you got to stand your ground because there's no margin for error. And when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, how do you get to heaven when you die? There's no wiggle room. There's nowhere for me to compromise. There's no ground for me to give. It's not like, well, we don't get this right. You know, God's going to be good with it. There's another way. Listen, there is no other way. Jesus is the way. And there's no other way. Bottom line. People sometimes wonder why we're so slow to to move new members into leadership positions such as Bible class leaders and such. Let me tell you, this is why. This is why. As the overseer of this flock, I have a God-given responsibility to make sure that we keep the teaching and the preaching scriptural. And that's why somebody comes flying in here and, and they may have been a Bible teacher somewhere else for years. That doesn't make any difference. They're still going to sit and they're going to listen and they're going to learn. And they're, they're going to have to find out where we're at when it comes to the, to, the, to the doctrines of the Word of God. And if they're not on board there, they won't ever stand with an open Bible before people. And I'm, I'm not trying to be mean or, or obnoxious about that. I'm just telling you the truth. I have a responsibility, and my responsibility is to protect this flock. I'll give you a good example. A number of years ago, we had a, a young man in our school, and his father, they went to a, another church here in town. Actually, there's another Baptist church here in town. And in a conversation that Brother Kay had with this young man's father, and he was a good man, they're not an issue there, but... He believed that you could lose your salvation. He believed you could be saved and then be unsaved. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you have eternal life. You have everlasting life. But here's the point I want to make. That man stood in front of a Bible class every Sunday in that church. Somebody didn't do their homework. Somebody said, well, he's a, he's a knowledgeable guy. Let's just throw him in there. 
And so you've got a pa- I know where that pastor stands on that issue, and you've got a pastor there, and he's preaching that you can't lose your salvation, and you've got some guy over here in a Bible class with 10, 12, 15, 20 people in it, and he's teaching that you can lose your salvation. That's an issue. Listen, anybody who stands in his pulpit or anybody who stands in a, in a Bible class or sits in, and leads discussion in a Bible class, they're going to need to be on board with what we believe about the Word of God. And that certainly applies to salvation by grace. And it's my responsibility uh, to make sure that, that no one flies under the radar, so to speak, and starts teaching something that is contrary to what the Bible teaches. I remember years and years ago, we had a family come into the church and had been there, and everybody was kind of taking to them and liking them. And um, next thing he knows, Brother Landis is getting these calls from some people in our church say, hey, uh, so-and-so invited us over to their home for a Bible study. That doesn't fly here. We don't have extemporaneous Bible studies in homes. Every ministry that goes on here goes on under the auspices and the authority of the local church. And come to find out, they were teaching some things that were contrary to the Word of God. And so, what, what happened? Well, they found out pretty quick that that wasn't going to work, and there wouldn't be any more Bible studies, at least not attended by members of Fellowship Baptist Church. You say, well, preach, that's awful strong. Listen, we're talking about the Word of God. And there's no wiggle room there. It is what it is. I think verse 1 gives us the indication that these men did their teaching in a manner that would not raise too much suspicion. Look at it again. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren. Listen, I promise you they did not stand up publicly and teach that you had to be circumcised to be saved. Paul and Barnabas would have cut that off and taken care of that long before they did. They would have dealt with that long before they did, but when the word came to them and they understood what was going on, then they dealt with it. This is not unlike what Peter wrote about when he said in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, but there were false prophets also among the people. I don't know why I thought about this, but this last week while I was away, I read an article that was written by uh, Benny Hinn's nephew, who is now the pastor of an evangelical church in California. Pretty eye-opening. If you can find that, you ought to read that. Um, pretty, pretty eye-opening. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily or privately or secretly or clandestinely shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. I don't know that there is a more damnable heresy than that which teaches salvation by anything other than grace. Can I point out something else here before moving on? Controversy was Satan's answer to the evangelistic efforts of Paul and Barnabas. Let me say that again. Controversy was Satan's answer 
to the evangelistic efforts of Paul and Barnabas. He knew that if he could paralyze the church with inward strife and get God's people to direct all of their energy against other believers and put the church on the defensive and keep it squabbling, then he could effectively thwart any evangelistic outreach. I think it's significant that we have no record during this time of any further missionary activity. We have no record of souls being saved at Antioch, which gives me the indication that evangelism had come to a halt. Because now all of their focus was on dealing with this, this turmoil on the inside. And listen, if Satan can ever get Fellowship Baptist Church to start squabbling amongst ourselves on the inside and having to direct all of our focus and all of our time and all of our uh, attention on the defense of the gospel and, and, and dealing with one another, listen, there won't be any time for outreach. And he would have successfully pulled off what would be his desire. Let's go on to verse... Uh, Verse 3 or verse 2. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, disputation with them, they determined, so after this big brouhaha, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. So they didn't get anything accomplished in this, uh, I won't say fight, this argument, this discussion, but it was more than a discussion. It was... It was intense, and they didn't get anything accomplished. So they said, well, let's send Barnabas and Paul, a few other guys. Let them go up to Jerusalem and address it. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all their brethren. So on their way up there, uh, they, were, they were telling people wherever they stopped, they were giving reports, hey, this is what God has done. All of these Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. Everybody's excited about it. Well, almost everybody. And when they were come to Jerusalem, verse 4, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But, verse 5, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. So these were some, some Pharisees that believed, but yet they said that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So when it became apparent that this issue was, was not going to be solved easily or wasn't going to be solved quickly, the decision was made for them to go up there. And here's what they found. They found that circumcision was not the only part of the law that the Pharisees expected the Gentiles to keep. They expected them to keep all of the law. But here's the problem with that. If the Gentiles did something in order to continue or finish or complete being saved, 
then their salvation would come by grace. It would come by way of their works. Listen, grace is the unmerited, unwarranted, unearned gift of God. It is God giving us what we don't deserve. Listen, church, God cannot work with, or excuse me, grace cannot work with anything that we've done. So that means that a person is not saved by grace plus baptism. A person is not saved by grace and keeping communion or by grace and joining a church or by grace and speaking in tongues or by grace and anything else. If a person is saved, they're saved by grace and grace alone. Not grace and circumcision, not grace and keeping the law. Grace works alone or it doesn't work at all. So we must defend salvation by grace. Say, Pastor, is that a hill you're willing to die on? You bet. Absolutely. I'll defend it till the death. Because it is the word of God. It is the way of God. I mean, we're talking about heaven and hell, folks. It's not like, well, yeah, but, you know, that's all you believe. Show me in the Bible anything different than that. It's not in there. It's just not in there. So we must defend salvation by grace. But go on in verse 6. We must declare salvation by grace. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know... How that a good while ago, God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth their hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by what, church? By faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So you've got all of this and I can imagine this scene, and everybody's talking over everybody, and, and it's getting heated, and, and they're going at it, and Peter stands up. Maybe he gestured with his hand. And he spoke to the Jerusalem council, and he reminded them of what God had done almost a decade prior to this. We studied that in Acts chapter 10, if you remember, Peter was, was asleep 
And he had this vision, and it was this vision of a, a sheet that was pulled up on four corners, and the sheet was being lowered down from heaven, and it was filled with all kinds of, of animals that were considered unclean by the Jews. And yet, Peter heard the voice of God, which said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, No can do. And so he has a second vision. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. He couldn't do it. It came down a third time in a third vision. And at that moment, there was a knock on the door. Because when Peter was having these, these visions, when God was trying to show Peter something over here in Caesarea in the home of a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, God was speaking to him and God was, was, he, he was a seeker. He was earnestly wanting to know more about the truth. And so God told him, send some men over to a man named Peter and bring him over here. So while God was doing this over here, God was also working over here, and he brings these men, and, and they knock on the door, and they say, we need to talk to Peter. Peter comes to the door. They tell him the story. Peter grabs some guys, said, hey, let's go. They make their way to Caesarea. Paul walks into the home of Cornelius the centurion. He sees a whole house full of people. The Bible says that Peter preached unto them the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, and they were gloriously saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And Peter's point was this, it was God who clearly chose to save those Gentiles just as they were. God didn't require them to get circumcised. God didn't require them to keep the law. God saved them by grace through faith. He said, so why do you want to mess with what God has done? By trying to make them keep the law, and, and I'm glad that he tacked that on the end, which our fathers nor us have been able to do. And you're wanting them to try who, who have not been raised up in Judaism, who do not know all of the laws, you're expecting them to keep all of the law. Listen, guys, we couldn't even keep all the law. And you're trying to put this burden on them. And then Peter closes his remarks with these words, verse 11. But we believe that through the what? Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. In other words, the question is not, how are the Gentiles saved? It is, how is anyone saved? The answer is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Peter's words silenced the entire assembly, giving Paul and Barnabas time to testify of all of the miracles that, that God had done as they preached the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. That's in verse 12. But I want us to look next at what James 
had to say and how he declared salvation by grace. Look at it, verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this, watch this, and to this agree the words of the prophets. In other words, what God has done through Peter in sending him to the Gentiles and, and reaching those Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, Cornelius, that all fits perfectly with what we know to be true from the Old Testament. Verse 16, after this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So here's the point I want to make. James who, by the way, was the half-brother of Jesus. Listen, he used the Scriptures to declare salvation is by grace without works. He references the Old Testament book of Amos in chapter 9, and we'll not go over there. But I do want us to do a little work in our Bibles tonight. I could have put these on the screen, but I think every now and then we need to not be so lazy. And we need to open our Bibles and turn to some scriptures. Can we do that tonight? Say, preacher, what are you going to do? I'm going to help you learn, hopefully tonight, how to defend the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. And, and so if I were to add, if, if, if you were, we were going to have this discussion and, and I believe that salvation is by grace plus some, something else. Somebody tell me, what, what scripture would you go to to help me understand that, no, that's not what the Bible teaches? All right, that's a good one. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I hope you have your Bible. I see six people in one Bible. Young people, bring your Bible to church. And it'd be better if you didn't use your phone, if you actually used an old-fashioned Bible. That way there's no temptation for you to do something on your phone while I'm preaching. Like somebody did this morning, I'll not call them out. But don't do that. Adults, bring your Bible. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have a Bible. If you're a guest with us, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. If you're a member here, you ought to bring your Bible. And if you didn't bring your Bible tonight, it's probably because we've made you lazy by showing too much Scripture on the screen. So maybe we'll talk about that tomorrow at staff retreat. Maybe we won't do that. Are you calling us out? Yeah, I am. But this is a good one. This is a good one. You, you can't misunderstand this. This is so clear. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by what? Grace. Grace. Are ye saved through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God. Read, read verse 9 with me out loud together. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If you're going to defend, if you're going to declare salvation by grace, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 are really where you need to start. It can't be any more clear than that. For by grace 
Are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves? It is a gift of God, not of works. Now, why, why, did God, why did God choose not to save us by works? Because he didn't want a bunch of people running around bragging about what they did to be saved, lest any man boast. Like God said, I'm not, not going to deal with that. No, it's, it's gonna, all going to be about me, nothing about them, so they don't run around bragging about all they did to be saved. Go to the book of Romans. This one may not be as, as clear. So, all right, I, right out beside Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. All right, let me, let me, let me help you here. You've got to know where to start, okay? I can't, I can't tell you anything other than that. You've got to know where to start. So we're going to start in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. But right out beside Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, write Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. For if Abraham were justified by works, meaning if he was made right with God by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. In other words, Paul said, listen, if if Abraham was saved by what he did, then he would have reason to glory in himself. He wouldn't be glorying in God. He would be glorying in himself. Look what I did. Look how good I was. Look how much I accomplished. Verse 5. Verse 3. For what saith the Scripture? I mean, this, this is fair enough, isn't it? So what does the Bible say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. No works there. It wasn't he believed God and did this, or he believed God and did that, or he believed God and did something else. He just believed. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Verse 4, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, If salvation is by works, that makes God a debtor to us. If I did this and this and this and this to be saved, guess what? God now owes me. But can I just be honest with you tonight? God is not a debtor to any man. But if salvation, if if righteousness and justification came by way of, of, of our good works, of us being a good person... That puts God in our debt. Verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness. What are those next two words, church? Say it loud. Without works. God makes us right with him by grace through faith without works. I mean, come on. I've read the Bible through a number of times. And I, if, if salvation is by works, I have yet to find where God says 
These are the works that you have to do. I have yet to find where God says, do this many works and you'll be okay. But yet I do find in the end of the Bible, 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Now wait a minute. If I'm saved by works, but I, I don't know how many works I have to do in order to make it, but yet over here it says I could know I have eternal life, something's, something's not jiving. Something's not working together. And there are no contradictions in the Word of God. And so, either I can know I'm saved by grace through faith, or I can't know I'm saved until I die, because I won't know if I did enough good works to get there or not. Does that make sense? Okay, so right out besides Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 6, or 2 through 6, write this. Because this is the next place you're going to go. Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. Romans 11, 5 and 6. Even so then at this present time also there's a remnant according to the election of what? Grace. Verse 6, and if by what? Grace. grace. Then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. In other words, Paul says this, you can't have it both ways. Either salvation is by grace or salvation is by works. Because if you say salvation is by grace and works, then grace is no more grace. What is grace? It is undeserved favor. So if I'm over here working, doing all this religious stuff, trying to get to heaven, then again, God becomes my debtor. I now deserve to go to heaven. So it can't, it can't, it can't be by grace and works. If it's by grace, it's by grace. If it's by works, it's by works. Because if it's, if it's grace and you try to add works to it, then it's, then it's no more grace. And if it's works, but you try to add grace to it, then it's no more works. It can't be, it can't be both. And that's the point that Paul's making. Now go to 2 Timothy right out beside those verses. Say, you still with me? Right out beside those verses, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. And nobody will get this but probably Brother Tyler and Brother Mike. But maybe I'm doing this because I just spent three days with uh, Doug Fisher. He used a lot of scripture. Pastor in San Diego, that guy used a ton of scripture. It's like the whole message is just reading scripture after scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, Brother McCracken says, if you've got to use that much scripture, you don't have anything to say. <laughs> I don't know that I'd agree with that. I'm using a lot of scripture. I hope I have something to say tonight. 2 Timothy 1, 9, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, let's read it together, not according to our works. Say it again. 
not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and what, church? Grace, Grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Not of works. And then one last one, the book of Titus. Last of the T-books. Speaking of Brother McCracken. Last of the T-books. Titus chapter 3. Right out beside 2 Timothy 1, 9, Titus 3, 3 through 5. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. Somebody say amen. Before we were saved, before we, uh, the Lord found us and, and, and changed us, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were serving divers, a multitude, all kinds of lusts and pleasures living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, here we go again, verse 5, not, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Church, here's the point tonight. If we're going to defend and declare that salvation is by grace, let's do it with the Word of God. Because your opinion I just put it out there where it ain't worth squat. And my opinion ain't worth squat. But you can't argue with this book. It's right there in this book. The salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, let me bring out one more, one more important point from the closing verses of our text, which is this. We must not defile salvation by grace. Verse 19. I don't know how far Brother Tyler got. If I'm repeating something, it's probably because it needs to be repeated. Acts chapter 15. As a matter of fact, one lady said, Pastor, I know Brother Tyler preached Acts 15, but you need to preach it again because I'm hard-headed. Well, I'm sure he explained it just fine, so I don't need to go back and re-preach it. But look at verse 19. Actually, I do know where he preached from because I listened to the first part of the sermon, so I would know. Wherefore, my sentence is, this is still James, wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them. Okay, so you have Peter. Peter said, leave these guys alone. Paul and Barnabas, they've stood and they've talked about how God saved all these Gentiles by grace. And now James, listen, if anybody carried weight in that room, it was James. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And here's what James said. Let's not trouble them. Who's he talking about? Those from among the Gentiles who are turned to God. But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled, and from blood. 
For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. See what's going on here. Okay, let's take Barnabas and Saul and, and some, some guys from our group here. Let's send them down there. We, we agree. We've come to an agreement here. And here's the letter we want to write. Greetings. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom, by the way, they say, we gave no such commandment. These guys were out there. They were doing their own thing. They were out there flying solo. We didn't send them. We want you to know that we did not send them. They were not of us. It seemed good unto us, verse 25, being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that, number one, you abstain from meats offered to idols, and, from, and, and number two, from blood, number three, and from things strangled, number four, and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well fare ye well. Preacher, what do you mean we must not defile salvation by grace? I think James points out two things here, two ways that we can defile the grace of God. Number one, the first way is by making non-biblical requirements of others. Here's what I mean by that. We are not to make areas of our lifestyle that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture a measure by which we determine whether or not someone is a good Christian. And certainly not whether or not they're saved. I'm talking about areas of dress, music, entertainment, etc. If someone doesn't live their life in these areas exactly like we do, it doesn't mean they're not a good Christian. Somebody help me here. It doesn't mean they're not a good Christian. And if we're going to if we're saved by grace, then we are to live by grace. We can't be saved by grace and then expect everybody to live under the law, especially our law. That says, you got to do what I do or you're not a good Christian. Well, who died and made you God? I'm talking about areas that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture. And I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but yes, there are gray areas in the Bible. It's not all black and white. 
There are some areas where we are allowed to use our own judgment and not defile our conscience. But James said, listen, I, I, listen, I don't think we need to put all of that stuff on them. Let's not defile the grace of God. Let's not put all of this stuff on them. But for the sake of our Jewish brothers, there are some things that they need to consider. Which brings us to the second way that we can defile salvation by grace. And that is by refusing to restrict our freedom for the sake of others. Look at verse 20. But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Listen, it wasn't important to James, or it was important to James. He said, listen, let's not trouble, let's not trouble the Gentiles with all of this stuff. But at the same time, it was equally important that the Gentiles not needlessly trouble the Jews by using grace as a means of living however they wanted to live. Well, I'm saved by grace and I live by grace and I'm free in Jesus and I can just live however I want to. Eh. Just like whatever was going off while ago. Eh, 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 eh. Great sound effect, by the way, wherever that was. I didn't look. I knew it was Chris right away. His face is red. And you're even a Mexican. Your face is red. I love Chris. I love Manny, sort of. I only said that because Manny's got a friend with him tonight, and I just wanted to embarrass him. But do you understand what I'm talking about tonight? Just because we're saved by grace and we live by grace doesn't mean that we can just throw up how we live in people's face. We need to use some grace. And if I know something offends you, and I'm going to do my very best not to do that in your presence. That's Christian maturity. We don't have to throw the way we, well, I just don't think that's wrong. To, well, if somebody does, there's no, there's no sense in needlessly offending them. Listen, I can set that aside for a few hours or for a day or for a few days I don't have to do that while you're around I'm not trying to hide it I'm just trying to respect you I don't want to offend you we're brothers in Christ we're sisters in Christ and I ought to be spiritually mature enough as your pastor to extend grace and not defile the grace of God Peter wrote about it this way, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, 
Galatians 5.13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Yes, I'm free in Christ. I, 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 I've been saved by grace. But here's the point. We should love our brothers and sisters in the Lord enough not to deliberately offend them by the way we live. I think to live otherwise is defile the grace of God that he has shown us in salvation. You've heard this before. Maybe Brother Tyler said this. But just because we have the right to do something doesn't make it right. Is that okay? Because we have the right to do something doesn't make it right. Especially if we know it's going to be offensive. Peter says that that we are to grow in grace. And I believe the ability to live free of offense is a good sign of our growth in this vital Christian virtue by which we were saved. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. This whole issue that we've studied tonight in the first part of chapter 15 probably, and I get this, probably doesn't weigh as heavy on us today as it did in the days of the book of Acts. But I just want you to understand tonight what Paul and Barnabas did in taking a stand and going to that Jerusalem council and stating their case was monumental had they not won those guys may have continued to preach and teach that you have to be saved by grace and by keeping the law and who knows where that would have gone again I know this doesn't seem like a major issue today because we got it all squared away but this was a turning point in Christianity, the Jerusalem Council. And today we have right doctrine because some men were able to fight because it was right to fight because they were right. Listen, I I don't, as your pastor, I don't go around looking for fights. I I I I just soon not. I'm I'm just just not my nature. But I will defend the doctrine of salvation by grace till I die. Because it's right. It's right in every way. We're not saved by grace in anything else. We're saved by grace and grace alone. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father.